when I was teaching this to my sons, Jordan was about eight years old, and I was explaining to him what this passage Corbin meant. You know how the Pharisees would take either your money or their own and they'd lay hands on it and they'd say, Corbin, this is dedicated to the Lord. It can't be used for anything else but God's work. Well, the next day I was asking Jordan, I said, Jordan, I need a dollar. Can you loan me a dollar? He took out his wallet and laid his hands on it. He said, Corbin, <laughs> this is dedicated to the Lord. But he understood, I think, the principle that God was trying to communicate in this passage. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of 1 Timothy, a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. The purpose of this and the second letter Paul wrote to Timothy, along with the letter Paul wrote to Pastor Titus, was to give direction to the day-to-day -day operation of churches in the areas of doctrine, decorum, and discipline. Today we move into chapter 5 of 1 Timothy as Pastor Carl begins a message entitled, Caring for Members in God's Church. Let's join Dr. Brogy now as he begins a look at the care of widows. Would you take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy, along with some of the other pastoral epistles, really are uh, our instruction on how we should function together as Christians. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great epistle. And Paul gives Timothy instruction on the church's leadership, on the church's government, on its conduct and its goals. And without this kind of instruction... The church could easily be led into heresy, but with it, God gives us a plan in which to faithfully execute His will in our lives. Now, I've told you over and over and over again that sometimes the Bible is difficult to understand because we don't understand the passage that we're reading in its context. And people open the Bible and they just turn to any chapter. And look, when someone sends you a letter, you don't typically start at page 3, paragraph 4, sentence 6. You start at the beginning and you read it all the way through. And it makes so much more sense. And yet that's the way most of the New Testament books were written, as letters. And so we need to understand our text in its context. So let me remind you of our passage this morning. If you remember, the very first three chapters of the book deal with the church and its members. In chapter 1, Paul made it very clear that true pastors, unlike false teachers, are to get their guidance from the Word of God alone. In chapter 2, he gives some explicit instruction on when the church is assembled, be it in a Bible study or a worship service or whatever context it may find itself, how we are to pray and how we are to preach and teach the Word of God. Then chapter 3 logically follows with those qualifications for overseers and deacons. And so that's the first section, the church and its members. Last week, we came into the second section in chapter 4, where we looked at the church and its minister. And we learned three characteristics of the good pastor. And really, it's not simply the good pastor, the good servant, though it's certainly focused on that. But because pastors are to be examples to the flock, what is true of them 
in many ways ought to be true of all of us. And so we saw that a good minister would preach the word. A godly minister would practice the word. And a growing minister would progress in the world. word. Now when we come to chapter 5, we turn a new corner to the third section in the book. And in chapters 5 and 6, he deals with the church and its ministry. And Paul gives Timothy some very pointed counsel on how to minister to specific groups found really in every local church. He uh, speaks of the fact that his ministry should not exclude anyone, that he should care for older men, older women, younger men, younger women, elders, servants, the rich, the poor. He is to love and to serve all people regardless of age or profession because God has called us together to be a family. So that's the book of 1 Timothy, the church and its members, the church and its minister, the church and its ministry. The first section deals with our being wise, the second section with our being strong, and the third section with our being faithful. So having said our text and its context, let me begin by reading a portion of our passage. Chapter 5, beginning now in verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in treaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for his own household, for his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, Paul begins this section in dealing with the members with really some introductory comments. He kind of takes the church as a whole, and he deals with the attitude that Timothy should have with different individuals in the congregation. He says in verse 1, do not sharply rebuke an older man. That's the first group. Rather appeal to him as a father. To the younger men, second group is brothers. The older women as mothers. And the fourth group, the younger women as sisters in all purity. So Timothy found himself in a mixed congregation, as every pastor does to some degree. Every congregation is mixed in age, young and old, and it's mixed in sex, male and female. And Paul reminds Timothy in his personal dealings with his people that their sex and their age needs to determine his attitude towards them. For instance, knowing Timothy, especially being a young pastor, as we have mentioned a few times in these first two letters to him, he would find himself having to admonish older men. And he tells them how he should do this. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. Now, if you have the old King James, it says, rebuke not an elder. And I've heard people use that to defend the fact that elders or pastors like me should never be rebuked. But please understand, it's not referring to that. That was a good translation in 1611, but it might be a little misleading today. It's the same word for elder, but it's used not in a technical sense, but here as an older person. Today, we even speak of our elders. 
Certainly elders are not above correction because before we're done with this chapter, he's going to give us some specific ways in which that should be done when it's necessary. For that matter, neither is Paul contradicting the instruction he will give Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he tells him to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. He is dealing here not how he should approach the congregation in his preaching, but how he should deal with himself on an individual level with various members of the congregation. And he says you're not to rebuke an older man, you're to appeal to him. Don't sharply rebuke him, rather appeal to him. We are to give the senior members of the congregation the respect that is due them and the affection that is due to our parents. Exhort him, he said, as you would a father. We treat older men like fathers. Likewise, he tells us, older women should be treated as mothers. And then he considers the younger generation. He says, treat the younger men as brothers. You love them as a brother. You recognize them as an equal. You don't speak down to them, but you speak to them as you would a brother. And then he says, you treat the younger women as sisters. You love them too, but he quickly adds, in all purity. You never treat a younger woman, Timothy, different than you treat your own sister. Hey, that's good counsel, especially for any young person here today. You treat... Members of the opposite sex, young men, as you would your own sister. What would you do with your sister? That's how you treat them. You say, what if I'm engaged? You don't know you're going to get married until you walk down that aisle and before God you make that commitment. I've seen many an engagement broken, some even at the last minute. You treat her as you treat your own sister in all purity. And if you do that, you'll keep yourself from all the evil and you'll keep yourself far away from temptation. Now, he speaks here of the family of God, not in business terms, but in family terms, because the church is not a business, it's a ministry, it's a family. And if the local church is a family, a pastor, especially a younger pastor like Timothy, he needs to understand that all members are not to be treated alike. Timothy, older people must be treated with respect. Your own generation must be treated as equals. And those of the opposite sex are to be treated with purity and restraint. And all with love, because that is to mark the fellowship of God. So having given some of those general comments, he now begins in the next two chapters to address in great detail a number of specific groups. The very first group that he tackles is that of widows. Look at verse 3. Honor widows who are widows indeed. And what follows is the most extensive counsel in all of the New Testament on how widows should be treated. Now, if left to ourselves, the temptation would be for us to deal with widows on an emotional level. And God knows that temptation. And so God would have us to be dictated in our decisions about widows, not simply by emotions, but by his wisdom. And so in verses 3 to 16, the apostle tells us how our Christian compassion should be expressed in regards to widows. If you're using your note-taking outline, I want you to listen today. If you have parents or if you have grandparents, this sermon is very important for you. God has some counsel you need to listen to. If you're 10 years old, 8 years old, <clears throat> you're old enough to listen. You can learn today, children. And if you're an adult <clears throat> and you have parents or grandparents, you must listen very, very carefully. Three major points that I'd like us to see about the church's ministry and your ministry 
to widows. First, some general considerations, some general observations, that is, to consider. Let me give you some general observations to consider as you build your biblical theology on widows. Let's consider the whole teaching of Scripture. If you read your Bible, and if you've read it carefully, you know that widows, along with orphans and uh, aliens and foreigners um, and, and uh, people like that, have a very special place in the heart and plan of God. Those who have no husband, namely widows. Those who have no fathers, namely orphans. Those who have no place to live, namely aliens or foreigners. God gives them very special care in His Word. Throughout the Bible, be it in the law or the prophets, or the teachings of Christ found in the gospel, or the instruction given by his apostles in the epistles, God continually speaks of widows. So let's begin first with what the Father commanded in the Old Testament. In Exodus 22, when God spoke of widows, he warned, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled. And I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Likewise, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy that God executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Likewise, God reminded the magistrates, the judges in Israel, cursed is he who distorts the justice to an alien, orphan, and widow. And all the people ought to be able to say, Amen. And even when God describes his own person, he describes his person sometimes in terms of these people. For instance, in Psalm 68, verse 5, he said that he is a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. Picture that, God in heaven, described here in his holy habitation as he describes what he is like, among other things. He is a father to the fatherless and a judge to the widows. In addition, when God dealt with this agricultural nation, when he spoke of their tithes that they were to give to the Lord, on the third year, their tithes was to be distributed differently. He commanded the people in Deuteronomy 14, at the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, remember the Levite, God took the land, divided it according to the 12 tribes, but one tribe, the Levites, didn't have any land. Because God wanted them to focus not on the temporal, but on the eternal. Not on the things of this world, but the special ministry he'd entrusted to them. And he said, look, I'll be your inheritance. And so the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town, shall come and eat and be satisfied. Why? In order that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hand that you do. And so the great teaching of the Old Testament is that God is the protector of the widow, the orphan, and the alien. In fact, quite a bit of the condemnation that is laid upon the nation by the prophets is when they fail to be compassionate with these laws of God. And instead of defending the widow, many times they oppress them, and God warned that he would visit them with judgment because of that sin. So that's what the Father commanded in the Old Testament. Think also what Christ modeled 
in the Gospels. When you come out of the Old Testament into the life and teachings of our Lord, you discover that his same kind of divine compassion that the Father showed, he showed. For instance, in Luke 7, you know, Jesus only raised a couple people from the dead, but one of those people was the only son of the widow of Nain. He had compassion on that lady. In Luke 18, when he taught us about prayer, never to lose heart, he tells the prayer in reference to a widow who incessantly comes to a judge seeking justice. And God reminds that the God of the universe will give her justice as he will answer our prayer. In Mark chapter uh, 12, he commended that poor widow who gave just a few coppers into the temple treasury. Of her, he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all that she owned, all she had to live on. And God warned the disciples in Luke chapter 20 of those scribes and Pharisees who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And even our Lord... He practiced precisely what he preached, for his own mother was a widow, Joseph dead by the time he was crucified. And he turned to John, his apostle, and he said, Behold your mother. Christ cared for the helpless of society and especially for the widow. But in addition to the Father's commands and Christ's modeling, I also want you to think about what the apostles instructed in the Acts and in the Epistles. Think about what they taught in the Acts and the Epistles. What Christ modeled is carried on by his apostles. Recently, as we considered deacons and what they're supposed to do, we studied Acts chapter 6. We saw early on in the church, there was the daily distribution of widows, to, of food to widows. They had this meals on wheels kind of ministry as they were cared for. Likewise, the apostle James in his epistle, when he, he spells out the kind of piety, godliness, religion that really pleases the Lord, he said, this is pure an undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. In Acts 9, the apostle Peter, like the Lord Jesus Christ, he showed compassion on a widow into a group of widows by raising their dear friend Dorcas from the dead. Throughout the Bible, you can read of God's continual, continual unending concern for widows. So that's just some general observations about widows as you consider a biblical theology on this subject. Secondly, from our passage this morning, I want us to focus on some specific instructions to obey. Now, what we find here is really not simply the most extensive teaching on widows in the New Testament, but in all of the Bible. And as you work through this section of Scripture, you see that... <clears throat> Paul's, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul's instruction about widows really falls into two major sections. In verses 3 through 8, he first deals with those widows who are to be cared for by family. Now, verse 3 directs that there are only certain widows who should be honored by the church. He says in verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. Now, underscore that in your Bible, this word honor. Now, certainly it includes the idea of respect, but it includes much more than the idea of respect. Equally, it's clear from the context, the word honor here is a particular kind of honor. 
They are to be honored financially. They are to be maintained or supported by the church. That's what this verse is referring to in its context. He's going to dictate for us in just a moment a group of widows who are to be put on the list versus those who should not be. Our Lord uses the same word, tamao, honor, in Mark chapter 7, not simply in terms of respect, but in terms of support, financially speaking. Do you remember what he said there in Mark 7? He told the Pharisees, you nicely, very conveniently, set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil or father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corbin, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many such things as that. Jesus reminded the scribes and the Pharisees that they cannot claim to be honoring their parents if when their parents fall on hard times, they don't actually support and maintain them financially. When I was teaching this to my sons, Jordan was about eight years old, and I was explaining to him what this passage Corbin meant. You know how the Pharisees would take either your money or their own, and they'd lay hands on it, and they'd say, Corbin. This is dedicated to the Lord. It can't be used for anything else but God's work. Well, the next day I was asking Jordan, I said, Jordan, I need a dollar. Can you loan me a dollar? He took out his wallet and laid his hands on it. He said, Corbin, <laughs> this is dedicated to the Lord. <laughs> but he understood, I think, the principle that God was trying to communicate in this passage. So there's the financial use of the word honor in the Bible. In fact, Paul in the same chapter is getting ready to do that when he speaks of elders who are worthy of double honor. Not just your respect, but also your financial remuneration. It's the same verb. And so to honor them is to honor these widows by supporting them. And very clearly among other requirements, such an a widow is to be destitute. Only those widows who are widows indeed, who are truly destitute, are to be honored in this way by the church. Now, the NIV describes these women as widows who are really in need. The English Standard Version puts it, honor widows who are truly widows. The New English Bible renders it, widows who are as such in the full sense. Three times the phrase occurs. You ought to circle them or underline them in your Bible. This word, widows indeed. Verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. Verse 5, now she who is a widow indeed and has been left all alone. And then again in verse 16, the church is to assist those who are widows indeed. Question, what constitutes one who is truly a widow or a widow indeed? Well, verse 5 gives us two characteristics of a true widow. For she is one, he says, who has been left alone. And second, she has fixed her hope on God is seen in the fact that she continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. 
True widows are not only those who are physically alone in this world, but also who are spiritually alive. And uh, these who are spiritually alive are getting ready to be contrasted with that group of widows who are spiritually dead. In verse 6, he speaks of these self-indulgent widows. He said, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. You know, there are some widows who live a lifestyle of immorality. They live in wanton pleasure in the Septuagint, which you know is the Greek rendering of the Old Testament that many of the Jews used in the first century because they lost their ability to speak Hebrew. This word wanton pleasure is used to describe in the book of Ezekiel, the daughters of Sodom. A real widow is one who has her hope on God. She's a spiritually centered woman, not a self-indulgent woman. Her focus is on the Lord. She walks with God and she talks with God throughout the day as seen in her entreaties. That is her prayer for other people, but also in her prayers for self. But what a contrast between verse 5 and verse 6 of these who are dead living people. That is, they are physically alive, they are spiritually dead, which is really a description of all lost people. But here's a group of widows who are living out that death through their godless life, through their wanton pleasure. So in addition to setting her hope on God, he also describes her as one who has been left alone. Now, of course, it stands to reason she's not been abandoned by God, but she is destitute of all human support. She has no surviving relatives to support her. That's why he tells us here in verse 4, but if any widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. In like manner, he says in verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, both of these verses communicate our responsibility to our parents or to our grandparents, and they are complementary statements, one being positive, the other being negative. Negatively, he tells us, or, or first positively, in verse 4, he tells us, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family. It's our duty it's an elementary justice, as seen in the phrase, to make some return. Paul will tell the Corinthians, when you, uh, your it's not the duty of children to save for their parents, but the duty of parents to save for their children. But someday, as he's going to spell out here in this text of Scripture, the responsibility can reverse. We are to make some return to them. They had given so much to us, and so we are to give back to them. But not only is it our duty to them, it's our duty to God. He tells both children and grandchildren to first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family. You get that? Look at it. Practice piety. The English Standard Version says, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. The NIV renders it, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. Now this word religious, godliness, piety, it's the Greek word eusebane, it speaks throughout the New Testament of one's obligation to God. 
It's the same Greek word that Paul used back in chapter 4 and verse 7 to describe Timothy's responsibility when he told him to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And so what I want you to see is that to care for our parents or our grandparents is part of our godliness. It's putting our Christianity into shoe leather. It's our duty to our parents, but it is also our duty to God. God commands us to honor our mother and our father, and in so doing, we are honoring God because we are in obedience to His will. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program 1TM11. Caring for Members in God's Church, Part 1. At Search the Scriptures, we are committed to growing you in your love and knowledge of God and of His Word. We want to see His Word residing in you so that, as the Apostle Peter says, you're always able to give a defense for the hope that is within you, with gentleness and with reverence. If you share this desire for others, won't you consider a one-time or ongoing financial gift to Search the Scriptures? Your involvement in this ministry can bear spiritual fruit in the lives of countless others. For more information, call us at 877-787-7478 or visit searchthescriptures.org. Thank you. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our look at the care of members of God's church, part of our study from 1 Timothy, as we search the scriptures 